Uh, we are, I'm wanting to work through the uh, Joseph story from the end of Genesis, starting in chapter 37 through to the end, and by God's grace we'll do that, and you can pray about the pacing. But today I want to do all of chapter 38 together, which is the story of Judah. And this is a chapter that I'm betting dollar to, to donuts you've never heard preached in church before. And I think there's two reasons. One of that is that when pastors or teachers go after the Joseph story, they usually stick to the Joseph story. And because this chapter is about Judah, there's kind of an assumption that it's not necessarily about Joseph. And so it's kind of skipped over and people wonder why this is even in there. And the Bible, isn't it interesting and sometimes confusing, but let's just get on with the show. Another reason why this chapter skipped over sometimes is just the content. It's mighty awkward what happens in chapter 38 of Genesis. And so sometimes people just skip over it because, hey, um, stories like this is the reason why we don't watch R-rated movies. And so there you go. But this is the word of God and its sensibilities of what we need to hear about are different than our own choices sometimes. And so I want to read this story together. But just as a bit of a reminder, in chapter 37, it started us off with the life of Joseph, and he was a young man, and he was the favored son in his family, and his father made this really great, multicolored, super expensive coat for him, and his brothers hated him because they were jealous, and then God began to speak to Joseph about the future and about his promises for Joseph and how he was going to use him. He was going to make him a royal ruler and going to use him in the world of grain and feeding people, which made the brothers even more jealous. And so they decided to deal with their jealousy by repenting and humbling themselves and confessing their sin. And they all lived happily ever after, except that last part never happened. Instead, they thought, you know what the problem with Joseph is, is that he's alive and around us. And so they decided to at first kill him. And then after a bit, they decided that they could make some money by selling him into slavery. And then they wouldn't have to deal with the guilt of killing him with their own hands. They'd let the Egyptians do it. And off he went. And then the brothers went home and they tricked their father into thinking that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal by taking that multicolored robe and dipping some blood in it and letting him put two and two together. And he began to mourn and was refusing to be comforted while Joseph was being taken down to Egypt. That's the backstory. So let's pick up the story and read the word of God together. Chapter 38 of the book of Genesis. These are the very words of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chesiv when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, or Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother." And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow 
in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in his, her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to sheep shearers. He and his wife, sorry, he and his friend here at the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapping herself up. And she sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me to come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back to the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her, and he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who, is at, who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah, Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. And when the time for her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. And as he drew it back, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez, which means breaching. Afterwards his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray you'd help me to be a good servant of the word today. And Father, would your word do its its purpose. Lord, you send your word to inform us who you are and who we are, to break and soften proud hearts so that we can have the humility required to know you, and so that we would be inspired to be faithful to you and to serve you with faith. And God, this is my desire. Fathers, we work through this story, which is um, sometimes disturbing, sometimes unsettling. I pray that you would really empower us to hear the voice of the Spirit, and that we would... um, be able to go away from here saying we've been in the presence of God. Lord, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. I pray that you would do all that's on your heart for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I'm entitling this message, The Lion of Judah. It's a little bit of a dad joke play on words, and I will warn you, there's a few dad jokes left to come. Because I want to, I want to delve into something, because we are used to using that word Judah or the name Judah in a good way, right? 
um, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah, and, and we think, yeah, this is great. And so when you sing songs like, Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah, what we don't sing usually is, Our God is the Lion, the Lion of that guy who sold his brother into slavery and then sent his daughter-in-law away because he didn't want to marry her off to another brother because she thought they were going to get killed, and then he got all randy one time on his way to go do some work, and then he slept with his daughter-in-law by accident because he thought she was a prostitute and impregnated her. He's roaring with power. And he just stops. Stop. Wait, those are the lyrics? Yeah, yeah, I was just trying to be honest. No, you can't put that on ccli like people can't worship to that the the line of the the sleeping with your daughter-in-law enslaving your brother guy you can't do that that's not going to sell and even if it does sell it's going to sell to the wrong kind of church so we don't want to do that and plus we got this thing going on with the videotapes online and the you know it's just no just no just no 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 just no just no but we can make a joke of it but in the mercies of God, we do have a story about somebody who was ter- a terrible person who, by God's grace, became the ancestor of Jesus Christ the Lord and whose name is carried forward in Scripture as a descriptor of his awesomeness. It's the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah, and the Lion of Judah is the descriptor of his awesomeness. And so, not unlike a um, an rather old children's book, I would like to figure out how did we get there. Amen? And so I want to just work through the story and the details, kind of help us understand what's going on in the story, and then apply a few of these things to us as we go. Now, I was saying last time, and if you weren't here, that's fine. I'll remind us all together that the history of Genesis and the history of the entire world is a spiritual battle between two kinds of spiritual fathers. The serpent or God. And when... Adam and Eve broke the universe by disobeying God's word and believing the serpent's word over God's word or trying to be autonomous, trying to be independent from their creator God by making their own choices and rejecting his word. Um, God responded by declaring a kind of spiritual holy war against the serpent. And this is what he said. He says, uh, this is Genesis chapter 3, starting verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So he's prophesying the destruction and the defeat of the serpent who's done this evil work. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so what God is saying is, in effect, and if you read through the rest of scripture, I think it bears it out. Because the human beings chose to spiritually ally themselves with the serpent against me, in one sense, the serpent becomes the boss of all of humanity. He becomes their spiritual father. He's stolen them from God. But their hearts are broken, their minds are broken, indwelling sin and the the fall will impact them. And by nature, they will be loyal to the serpent against God, unless God does something. But God says, I'm going to intervene and I am going to make a people who hate you, serpent. I'm going to make a people who consider you their enemy and I'm going to crush you through them even though you will crush their heel for a time. They're going to crush your head which is a picture of destroying his authority and his power in somebody's life. Headship means like authority and power. And so they're going to crush your head, and, but you are going to be allowed to bruise their heel. So the people of God triumph over the enemy by suffering faithfully to God. This is all of human history, including our lives. 
Who's your dad? Do you love the serpent and his ways, or do you hate him and are willing to suffer in order to see his works defeated in your life? And the ultimate seed of the woman is the Lord Jesus Christ, who literally did have his heel crushed in order to destroy the power of Satan, which is our guilt before God. On the cross, he died so that we can be totally forgiven, and so we can stand before God, and Satan, the accuser, will have nothing to accuse us for because we're completely forgiven. And then out of that peace with God, we go and destroy the works of Satan by making peace and forgiving and being faithful to God and reaching out to other unbelievers and seeing them rescued from the kingdom of darkness. Amen? That is the story of human history and the Bible. And when we begin chapter 38, which is the chapter I just read, it looks like the Lion of Judah is just going to be another Cain. He's just going to be another son of the serpent, another seed of the serpent. Because it's just supposed to sound like it. Here you have this guy who's killed his brother, he thinks, and now is wandering away from God. And that's supposed to remind us of the first brothers, Cain and Abel, and what happened with them. You might remember, you know, right after the garden, Eve starts having some kids, and she ends up having three sons, but the story looks at the first two, and Cain is the firstborn, and Eve's really excited about him, and Abel, whose name means like breath or vapor, which isn't usually what you name someone you're really excited about, like lightweight vanity. In in Ecclesiastes, when the preacher says vanity, vanity, all is vanity, that's Abel. That's his name. So she named him vanity, light, meaninglessness. That's what an encouragement, you know, speaking of praying a blessing over somebody, it's like, here's my son Cain, who I got for myself, and there's the other one, meaningless. All right, so who are your kids? And um, so this is what's going on, and, and you remember, all we really know about these brothers is their relationship to God and worship. And so Abel brings some of the best stuff he has. He's a shepherd and he brings the best portions of his flock to offer to God by sacrifice. And Cain just kind of does a, well, I'm going to give you something. You know, I've got my good grain. I've got my not so good grain. And seems how we're just going to burn it up. Why don't I just give God the not so good grain and keep the good grain for myself because, you know, nutrition and um, taste and stuff like that. And God does not look favorably on Cain's offering, even though he honors Abel for his offering. And he comes and he talks to Cain, like kind of like a good dad. And he says to him, you know what, you can do this. Um, if you do well, won't things go well for you? You can do this, Cain. You can, <laughs> we can work over this hard issue of yours and you can do this. God is talking to Cain. Ah! Um, how does Cain respond? Well, he's jealous of Abel and he'd rather see Abel dead than himself change and see both of them blessed. And then what happens is God shows up and he tells Cain that he's going to be under judgment for the murder, the first murder ever. And Cain wanders away. And what does he do? He just starts building things and having babies. That's, that's his story. Cain tries to kill his brother. He comes under the judgment of God. He leaves where the people of God are because he gets banished. And then he just starts having babies. And this is what Judah's life sounds like. He's sinned against God's favored son, the one that God has blessed with these dreams by getting Joseph sold into slavery. And then he breaks his father's heart and then he just leaves and goes about just doing what people do when they don't have sound consciences. And so this is what I think is going on. Judah is living with this lie. He's living with his sin. 
and he looks at his brothers, and they're all in on the sin, and they all can't talk about it, and they don't want to try to fix it and like follow Joseph into Egypt and maybe try to find him, which would have been the right way to deal with his guilt, probably. Instead, he just wants to leave, and and so he just wants to um, deal with the fact that he doesn't have peace with God through the three things that guys tend to go to when they don't have sound consciences before the Lord, which is work, women, and walking away from things. These are the three strategies that people in general and guys in particular like to use when they don't have a clear conscience. Well, I'm just going to start working. I'm going to work, I'm going to work, I'm going to work, make some money, make some money, make some money, work, 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 make some money, make some money. I'm just going to lose myself in my job. Or they go after pleasures, and um, there isn't anything really much more pleasurable than, than women. And I know people who maybe use fentanyl might argue with that, but... Um, I don't think so. Um, but he's devoting himself to a life of pleasure because if you don't have the joy of the Lord that comes from walking with peace with God, you need some other kind of pleasure to fill in that gap. And it's going to be something. could be a chemical, could be a drink, could be um, video games nonstop. It could be people, maybe not being with a woman, but trying to be an attractive woman and feeling like you're beautiful that way. But we got to find something to fill in the joy of knowing God peacefully that we're supposed to have and walking away from things, right? He doesn't want to face the consequences of his actions. He doesn't want to walk in the light. So he's going to try to make it go away just by making himself go away. And this is what he does. And so Judah goes down from his brothers and turns aside to the certain Adulamite, poor Hira, for making friendships with Judah. Your friends do matter. And um, he just starts having babies with this Canaanite lady. And you're not supposed to marry Canaanites. You might remember that Abraham made his servant go on this long journey to go and find uh, Rebekah. Because he's like, whatever you do, don't marry my kid to a Canaanite. And I think the heart there is that the Canaanites were such rabid pagans that you can't be physically intimate with a Canaanite lady without her somehow convincing you to worship her crazy pagan gods. And so they tried to steer away from being married to them because of the, the persuasion factor that comes along with, with their religion. And so here's Judah looking like Cain. He's left the people of God with a guilty conscience, and now he's joining himself to the pagans, which are going to come under God's judgment, which he's already said is going to happen. And they have a bunch of kids. And now his eldest son, Er, is grown up. So if you remember, this is like probably 18 years, 20 years later than Joseph going down into Egypt. So we're really fast-forwarding in time. And in comes this, this lady, this young lady named Tamar, into their life. And then things start getting really interesting because Tamar's first husband, Er, is a wicked man, and so God just kills him. And so in their culture, you know, when a woman was married into a family, she was married into the whole family, and the family was supposed to take responsibility for her. And so if her husband died and she didn't have uh, offspring, the family was responsible for providing her offspring. Because kids are really important. And so, you know, in a time when you didn't have artificial insemination and you didn't have adoption or anything like that, if a woman's going to have offspring, she needs to have someone to have offspring with. So as a way to take care of her and keep her in the family and provide for her what she wants, which is offspring, and to keep the family line going, as well as to not forget the the dead son who was the first one married. Um, Tamar was to be married to 
the second born so that he could provide offspring for her and for her brother. But Onan didn't want to do this. I mean, he, he did it, but he didn't want to do it. And so he would sabotage her conceptions every time. Which the Lord saw and was also really cheesed at. And so Onan also uh, bit the dust by an act of God. And now Judah is living life with a uh, bad conscience. And so he can't read the world right. This is one of the consequences when you don't have peace with God, when you don't have a life of faith with God, you can't actually understand what's going on around you. And so he sees what's happening and he thinks that Tamar's the problem. From God's perspective, it's his, it's his wicked sons that are the problem. But he thinks, man, this lady must be cursed. Like, is she just bottled up poison? Like, every guy I try to marry to her ends up dead. So he's he again lies and he's like, you just go back to your father's house and wait until Shayla grows up and then you can marry him. But he has no intention of doing that. He thinks he's saving Shayla's life from this evil woman, even though it's the, the problem is not her. Notice Judah again, thinking he can solve his problems by deception. And this is where everything changes. And this is where this is like part two of the story, which I call, um, God's lion tamer, which is, again, a bit of a dad joke, but if you think about it, it's a little bit funny. God's lion tamer, because her name's Tamer. Somebody, anybody? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I, yeah, that's right. This is where my lack of self-control becomes a benefit for all of you. Benefit, in quotation mark. This is where things start to change, okay? So Judah's, it, it is sometime Judah's wife dies, and um, he's feeling single again, I guess. And so he's traveling to go visit his sheep shearer. So speaking of working, he's been a successful businessman, okay? So he's got his own flocks and stuff. And so he's off to, to do the sheep shearing thing at the right time. And Tamar hears about it. So your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep. And what I think Tamar is hearing is, your father's showing up, it's been a while, and he's here for work, not to get you married to his third son. So she realizes that she's been abandoned, and so she takes off her widow's garment and dresses herself up in something else, including a veil, and she goes and sits by the roadside. And so she obviously knows something about Judah's character here, right? Because most father-in-laws aren't like Judah. But you got to remember, like when Tamar married Judah's son, she joined the family and they would have just had a bunch of tents kind of together. And so they lived together and Tamar knew what Judah was like. And so she hatches this plan that works off of Judah's character and it works flawlessly. She knows that he's like this. And she dresses up in a certain way and she's obviously thought it through because as they begin to barter and negotiate, she steers the conversation towards getting a pledge from him. And the pledge she gets from him is a signet and a cord and a staff, which were essentially the Old Testament versions of your driver's license, your passport, and your credit card. They're his ID. Because she's thinking ahead, I want to get pregnant, and when he finds out, it's trouble. So I need a safety net. This is Tamar's safety net. What will you give me? She's like, oh, I'll give you a goat. Sounds fine, but before you go, I'm going to want your, your driver's license, your passport number, and your credit card. And he agrees, and then she disappears because she's into prostitute. She disappears, and then poor Hira 
some friend gets sent to go and deliver the uh, prostitution money, which is even just uncomfortable to say at church. But, and he goes and looks for her and can't find her, and he goes back home, and Judas says, well, let's just forget it, because I don't want to be known as the guy who keeps sending people with goats around the world looking for that lady he slept with that one time. And so they just call it quits. And then three months later, Judah is told that Tamar is pregnant by immorality. So she's not married and she's pregnant. And Judah um, responds with anger and he wants her dead right away. And that's when she kind of springs this trap on her, on him, saying the guy that impregnated me belongs to these and he sees what's going on. And again, I, I can only assume that, that Tamar really knows what Judah's like. And what I think was happening here is Judah, Judah's bad conscience just got stung again. Judah has been looking at his entire life through the lens of, I'm the victim here, I'm the victim here, I'm the victim here, I'm the victim here. When he was at home and Joseph was getting the favoritism, I'm the victim here. When the dream started showing up and it sounded like God was going to bless him, I'm the victim here. I need to attack this guy. And now I feel guilty for what I've done and I'm the victim here. So I'm just going to walk away. And my two sons died after marrying Tamar and I'm the victim here. And now Tamar is pregnant and forget about the fact that I abandoned her and forget about the fact that I sent her away on purpose and forget about the fact that my plan was to never see her again. Now that she's pregnant, I'm the victim here and she needs to die. I know how to solve my problems when I'm the victim here. Somebody needs to die. I think that's what's going on inside of his head. And Tamar pulls out her safety net and Judas says the words that change his life and change the direction of this story and enable his name to be thought of with any kind of goodness. And he says these awesome words where he says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And th- these words are meant to carry all the weight of Judah. His, his hard heart is just broken. His um, seared conscience has been pierced through. And all of a sudden he's repenting because he's seeing now that actually she was way more wrong than he has been. And he's been the perpetrator and he's been the victimizer and he's been the sinner. And he was just about to kill this woman who is bearing his sons. And so all this like rush of humility and rush of having his mind and his heart broken are all expressed with him saying, she is more righteous than I. And then she goes on to have twins, which is, I think, a sign of blessing from the Lord. And you get this interesting thing with the younger one, seemingly grabbing the older one by the heels as he was trying to get his arm out there. Perez yanks him back in and says, I'm going first and busts out first. And then Zara manages to scramble after feeling like a Johnny come lately. I'm sure. All right. What in the world do you do with a story like this? Some, some of you, if you're, I was like, I'd like you to preach this chapter. You'd be like, why do you hate me? Come to my community group. Help us understand this. Why do you hate me? This is such an uncomfortable and hard chapter, but so good and so rich, and I'm hoping by the time I'm done that you will have seen the glory of God with me. One of the first things I think we need to come face to face with from this story is the fact that God put two of Judah's sons to death. Because we can read a story like that and be like, whoa, God, what? What? Is, what? what? You, ki- you just killed? What? 
You put them to death, like right there? What is wrong with you? Did you forget your coffee that morning and you just, or were you out hunting with the safety off and it just, kablam, and it just went off? And these, like, what is wrong with you? Because we can have this sense of feeling like we're the center of the universe and it's all about us and, and we wouldn't want it if our kids got put to death because they're wicked and we wouldn't want it if we were put to death because we were wicked and we, this, this doesn't seem right and I don't want this story to be my story and I don't like this and what's going on and God, what have you done wrong here? But I think the reality is that these kinds of things happen to remind us what actual justice looks like. Okay? God put Er and Onan to death because they were wicked and wickedness deserves to get put to death right there in God's world. That's fair. That's justice. We don't know what Er did wrong. It probably had something to do with him being a bad husband because that's the time that he got killed. We do know what Onan did wrong. He disobeyed his father's will and he um, was robbing his brother of faithfulness and robbing his wife and sister-in-law of what was her due. And so he deserved to die, and so he did. And for us, we can look like that, like he just disobeyed his dad and was a bad husband, and he had to die. And it's like, yeah, that's actually what being a disobedient child and being a bad husband deserves. He deserved to die, like right there, like right there on the ground, like cancer, AIDS, and hit by a truck all at the same time. That's what wickedness deserves. And part of the scandal of this is that in this story, if anybody deserves to die, who should die? Judah. Like, he's the one who got his brother killed, he thinks. He's the one who's, who's really messing Tamer around. He's, he's the worst one. Well, why didn't he die? He should have, like, sold Joseph into slavery, and before the caravans even on the horizon, he should have been, like, forced choke, <laughs> dead. That would have been fair, because what he did was intensely wicked. And it was absolute rebellion against the Lord. He did it because he didn't like God's plan for Joseph. So what is, what is this meant to do? When God does acts of justice in the world, the Bible tells us it's so that we would be able to see the world rightly. The only reason people like us who are sinners and wicked from the heart aren't dead is because of God's mercy and patience and because he has a plan. That's the truth. Ever been a disobedient child? Ever been, ever hated a brother? Ever been a bad spouse? The only reason we're not dead is because of the mercies and patience of God. And so when we're looking at our lives and evaluating things or reading the scripture and evaluating God's behavior, we usually forget right off the bat that we should be dead. And not just dead, but dead and sent to hell dead. Dead and sent to eternal punishment dead. That would be fair. That would be just. That would be justice served out hot, fast, and and done. That would we're, we're all just a bunch of Jesse Smollett's with the with the patience and the not having gotten what we deservedness of our life so far. So that's just the reality. Air and Onan didn't get a kind of mercy that anybody who does get that mercy didn't earn and didn't deserve. It was just God being patient. The only reason Judah survives this story is because God is patient with him and has a plan for him. And so we just need to humble ourselves and be like, that's true. Every, any wicked city deserves to go up like Sodom and Gomorrah did. The reason they don't is because God is patient and merciful and he has a plan. He wants to save sinners. 
true. So we need to be humble. The other thing I want to see here is, is just how God works to save a sinner. Because as I was saying at the beginning, Judah has set himself up to be read as a son of Cain, a son of Satan. And his whole life looks like this guy's a goner. God's just going to ignore him, let him do his thing. I just think about Cain, like the tragedy of Cain's life. He probably lived for 600 years after he killed Abel, just 600 years of working and working and working and then never getting restored and then hell. 600 years of just, just the, the hardened conscience and never humbling himself and never admitting that he did wrong. Remember even Cain's response when God shows up and said, you killed your brother, he, and, and this is your consequence. He goes, oh, I can't bear this consequence. All he cares about is himself. And God never intervenes to change that like he does for Judah just by grace. And so God sets up this ambush for hard-hearted Judah with Tamar. Tamar is God's ambush. And I want to point out some details from the Joseph story and from the Judah story that are meant to sound like each other so that when we hear this, we go, wow, it sounds like God was in control of this because it wasn't just an accident what happened here. So let me point out a bunch of details. And this is just a short list of seven. And I I think I had it 12 at one time, but we'll just leave it. Okay. I'll just pick some at random here. Um, Number one, both of the stories involve goats which is maybe easy to do in the Old Testament, but God doesn't bring up goats all the time. So in the first story, where's the goat? Well, the goat's blood is shed in order to make the clothing look like Joseph's been attacked. And the second one, a goat is used as the negotiated payment for the uh, prostitution, Judah thinks. Which also reminds me that in both stories, clothing is used to deceive. In the first story, the brothers have stolen Joseph's cloak, and they use that to trick their dad into thinking Joseph's dead with the blood on top of it. Well, Tamar also uses her clothes to trick Judah this time. First time Judah's the deceiver, this time Judah gets deceived. She takes off her, her funeral clothes, she puts on something that she, she picked up at Licenza or whatever it is, and then she hides her face with a veil, and, and Judah has no idea what's going on, just like his dad had no idea what's going on, and they use clothing both times. <coughs> In both stories, Judah calls for someone to die. The first time it's his, unright- his, his righteous brother Joseph and his plan succeeds. The second time it's his righteous daughter Tamar and by God's grace his plan does not succeed. In both stories, there's a messenger involved. This is the one, when I saw this, I was just like, bah, I can't even believe how deep the similarities go. The first story, you might remember, Jacob sends Joseph as a messenger. He's meant to go out there, find his brothers, find out how the flocks are doing and come back and report back right? You track with me? And at first he can't find the brothers and he's wandering around in a field like some of you think I'm doing during this message right now. And he's wandering around a field and somebody finds him and tells him, they're not here, but they went over here. And then he finds them and and bad things happen. And the second one, you might remember, um, Judah sends his friend Hira with the goat as a messenger. And Hira's wandering around looking for this prostitute, can't find her. Just like Joseph in the first story. This guy wandering around, sent as a messenger, but can't find the person they're looking for. And he doesn't to start off with, but they end up finding the lady who Joseph, or sorry, Judas slept with eventually, about three months later. So, samesies. Um, in both stories, God speaks twice. 
The first time it's two dreams given to Judah, sorry, Joseph. The second time God speaks twice by putting both of Judah's sons to death. But there's two of them where God shows up to speak and reveal his will. First time it's an act of grace. The second time an act of judgment. But both stories have two of them. Both stories involve Judah covering his pride and his actions. The first time he says um, he wants to like defend himself mentally, and he says, let's not kill him ourselves. Let's just sell him into slavery so that we can go home feeling good about ourselves. And we'll, we can go home and be like, oh, we solved that problem in a good old way, and we're good guys, and we're not murderers, not murderers, not murderers. Just sold him into slavery so Egyptians could drive him to death. Um, that song will be on iTunes later today. It has a message. And the second time, when Hira comes back and he can't find the cult prostitute, he says, stop looking for her so that, I don't, so that nobody's laughing at us. He's trying to protect his pride both times. He's like, I don't even know that guy who sends people with goats around the world looking for that lady. He slept with once, and I may have used that joke already. But there's two times um, Judah's both trying to cover his pride by what he does here. And the biggest one, which we're supposed to hear and have the aha, got you moment, is you might remember when the brothers bring the clothes to Jacob, the dad, they don't say to him, somebody must have killed Joseph. They say, we found this. Would you please identify it? And Jacob's allowed to fill in the details by himself and think of his own deception. He must have been torn by wild beasts. Well, what does... Tamar say to Judah when he's coming to kill her. She says, please identify whose these are. It's a direct quote, except 20 years later, by a woman who had no idea what happened in that desert all those years ago. By the grace of God, he gets her to say the exact same thing that Judah had said to his dad with the clothes. And so I can only imagine when Judah standing there hearing those words and going, uh, he's transported back all those 20 years to hearing his dad make up the story to himself. But we, as people who hear the word of God, are supposed to look at these stories and say, God has not let Judah off the hook, either for his crimes or for his grace. He set up this situation with Tamar to be an echo of what happened last time because he's going after Judah's heart. And sometimes I think we should uh, assume that these kinds of things will happen to us. Anybody ever have any troubles or situations that keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back? And it sounds like you're here again all these years later and you're here again all these years later and there's a time when you were a child and then, then now it feels like as an adult you're just here again. I think behind all these things is a gracious God who's wanting to deal with things. If God didn't love Judah, you know what he would have done? Nothing. He would have met him at the end of his life and turned up the heat in the fire. But because he wanted to give grace to Judah, he brought him home and he brought him back and he brought him back so that Judah's pride could be broken and he could see what was actually going on in his heart, maybe even recognize that he was being used and following the serpent and come to a place of humility and usefulness. And one of the reasons I just am so convinced that this story is just an act of grace on Judah is because of Tamar's Christ-like behavior. Well, that's the last thing you thought I was going to say after reading this story. And Tamar is so much like Jesus. Anybody? 
just give me seven minutes here. We don't know a ton about Tamar, and the Bible often will not tell you tons about people, but when they do that, when they don't tell you tons about people, whatever it tells you, you're supposed to take really seriously. So all we really know about Tamar is kind of like three things, but each of those things is somewhat Christ-like and kind of explains why God decided that he wanted Tamar in Jesus' lineage to be his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. And this is why. Number one, um, she was obedient. Okay, so the first thing that we know that Tamar actually does is that Judah sends her home to her father's house, and she went. And this wasn't great. She didn't have to go home. She probably should have just stayed there as part of the family, but Judah sends her home, and she went. Is Jesus an obedient son? Yeah. In fact, Tamar's obedience, when she's probably getting mistreated, um, makes Onan's disobedience to his father's command to to marry her and give her children to stand out as that much worse. It's like, dude, she's a Canaanite. She's supposed to be the bad one. And she's way more obedient than you are, Onan. Next, um, she was fighting for something that belonged to her. She was owed a child of the family. Tamar totally could have gotten pregnant without this whole ruse with with, uh, Judah. Right? Just like any lady who wants to could probably get pregnant if she went to the right places at the right time. She could probably find somebody to give her a child, right? But she went through this whole ruse to actually get a legitimate child, a child from the family. And I sometimes wonder, like, if when she was living with Judah, if sometimes they talked about Abraham and the promises that God gave to Abraham and the promises he gave to Isaac and the time that an angel of God wrestled with Judah's dad, Jacob, and the limp he gave him, but the promise he gave him, and she's just like, I want to be a part of this family. I want to be a part of this family. This is the family of God. I want to be a part of this family. And so she does this whole thing so that the child that she has will be a part of that family and keep her in that family. Just like Jesus came to save us, to get back what he's owed. Guys, he made us all. And he's owed 100% loyalty and faith all the time. If If all of us spent our entire lives just worshiping Jesus, believing in him, obeying him, and never did anything wrong, that would just be giving Jesus what he was owed as our creator. And so when he came back to save us, he was coming for what belonged to him, which is a family of God who honored his dad. Tamar embraced major shame to accomplish this good thing. Um, I think almost everybody who reads this story goes, Tamar, sheesh. Ugh, like... You dressed like a prostitute to sleep with your father-in-law? Four thousand years later, we still feel shame for her. And as Christians, we can look at Jesus and be like, yeah, he died on the cross, and we sing a song, we think it's all happy, and it's like, no, no, the cross is worse than what she did. To be executed by the cross was the most horrible, shameful, physically torturous insult that the Romans could devise. They, were, they, they stripped you naked. 
I know in all the movies they put a little underwear on somebody so it can be still like PG-13 or whatever, but he was hanging naked so that his genitalia could be mocked along with everything else to hang there torturing in death. And so when we, we, and we rightly celebrate the cross, it's God's kindness to us, but we've totally lost the sense of shame of it. it. So when you think about the cross, think about the shame of prostituting yourself to your father-in-law to get a child. And those feelings would be appropriate to the priest of the cross. That sense of revulsion. And that's why so many people stumbled when Paul would go into a city and preach Jesus crucified to the Jews and they'd just be like, that's a curse. Messiahs don't get cursed. We preach Jesus crucified to the Romans. They're like, you're telling me your God is like a runaway slave or people that we murder or kill in a special way so that everybody knows how horrible they are? You expect me to believe that? That's disgusting. Tamar went, she, she totally knew it. She embraced the shame to do this good thing. And you know what? You can read the Bible through and ask the question, what does God think about Tamar? And as far as my reading of Scripture, God doesn't have anything bad to say about Tamar. As far as I understand Judah's words, she is more righteous than I, is what God thinks about Tamar. And you can read the rest of Scripture, and Tamar only shows up in good ways. At the end of Ruth, when Ruth is getting married, the women of the city come and say, May you be like Tamar, who bore children to Judah and built up the city. And Tamar is included in Matthew in Jesus' genealogy. She's the Messiah's great-great-grandmother. And so, as far as my understanding of Scripture, God doesn't have anything bad to say about Tamar. Can we join him in that? I would like to invite us to never think a bad thought about Tamar ever again. Yeah, she was in a, in a, hard, she was in a hard spot. She did something awesome in a hard spot. I think, that, I think that's how God thinks about her. And by the way, you're going to meet her one day. She's totally saved. So she's right now in the presence of God. And so I, sometimes I think I'm responsible for what I preach about people who I'm going to meet one day. And I just, I do that sometimes. <laughs> she risked her life to bring about these children. She knew her father-in-law and expected him to do something terrible. And so she set up that safety net. But he could have just batted that stuff out of her hands. I don't care about your seal. I don't care about your cord. You're going to die. And she risked her life to do it. And through this risk, just like Jesus risked her life, but through this risk, she brought about a restoration for a terrible sinner. Okay, so how many sons of Judah dies in this chapter? How many sons did Tamar bear to Judah in this chapter? Yeah. God uses her to bring restoration to a terrible sinner. Because that's amazing. That's what Jesus does for us. He brings restoration to terrible sinners. He takes our crap lives and he says, I'm going to fix stuff. I'm going to start. I'm not going to fix everything because if I fixed everything right away, you'd just get proud and you'd start all over again. <laughs> you'd start killing Joseph all over again. I'm going to let you feel the hurt. I'm going to let your heel be bruised as you walk out following me. You're going to let your heel be bruised as you start having victories over the serpent in your life. It's going to hurt, but I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore a wicked sinner. Just like Tamar brought about the restoration of a sinner, this is what Jesus does for us. Amen? So I hope you can see this now. I know if you've ever read this, you've just been like, speed read this chapter, let's get back to the Potiphar's house. Oh, it's bad there too. But um, I, 
I, I just, I don't think Tamar earned everything, but I, I also don't know, God finds these wild, awesome women amongst the pagans that he's just like, every once in a while, just like, I'm going to knit you into my story. Rahab, prostitute, great, hide some spies, boop, 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 you're going to be Jesus' great-great-grandmother too. He's, he's got a thing for restoring uh, women who have been mistreated sexually, this God of ours. which is wonderful. All right. So last thing I want us to think about scripturally, and then we can talk a little bit more, is God's rescue plan for Judah. I started off talking here saying that this is about God rescuing Judah, and he really does. And you can see it in the rest of the story. So I'm going to reference the rest of the story. Maybe we'll get there someday, but you might have to take my word for it. Um, Judah is restored in one sense, and we know it because he goes home. Chapters later, when the brothers, remember, they're going back and forth from Egypt looking for food during the famine. They go there once, they come home. Joseph, in disguise, has told them that you won't see me again unless you bring your brother Benjamin. Jacob doesn't want to send them. doesn't want to let go of Benjamin. So here's Judah in the situation again where Jacob is favoring one son. You can't go with my Benjamin, my, my special Benjamin. And what's Judah's response? I'm going to kill that Benjamin. No, he says to his dad, we would have been gone and come back if you just let us go. I promise I will make sure Benjamin's okay. And Judah, the one who sold his brother into slavery, is the one getting them back to Egypt where the food is by promising his dad, I will make sure that the favored son is protected. And if you remember how it goes, um, Joseph puts, when they're there, he hides his chalice in Benjamin's donkey bag, which is something you can probably buy on eBay, but um, he hides his like magic chalice in the donkey bag, and when, when everyone's got their food and they're heading back home, he sends his secret police after them, and they capture the chalice in Benjamin's donkey bag. And Joseph is trying to give the brothers an opportunity to be unfaithful again. And the secret police say, we'll just take Benjamin back, you guys can leave. And they're like, no, they all come back. And Joseph is fighting with the brothers in pretending again. And he says to them, look, this guy's my slave now. You guys can all go, but this guy's he's, he's my slave now. And Judah comes up to him and he's just like, sorry. He starts telling the story again. And he said, look, you're the one who asked if we had a brother and we told you we had a brother. And you're the one who told us you can't see me again without this brother. And I told my father I would make sure that my brother comes home. And if we go home without Benjamin, he's going to die right there. And so please take me instead of Benjamin because I don't even want to know that my father is going to suffer with Benjamin coming back. So let me stay for Benjamin because I cannot bear the thought of my father being grieving over Benjamin. And he's pleading with Joseph, thinking Joseph is this like terrible Egyptian. Lord. And it's at that moment that Joseph loses it, starts crying and says, everybody else says, I am Joseph. It's that moment when Judah, the enslaver, and Judah, the one who sent Tamar away, is like, don't do it. Let me stay for Benjamin. Let me suffer for Benjamin. Let me die for Benjamin so everyone else can be okay. That's the moment when everything changes and Judah, Joseph reveals himself and everyone's saved. And so the, the this is how God saved Judah's heart and transformed him from the bitter, it's all about me, brother and slaver, to 
I, even though my father's ideas about me haven't changed, I can't bear the thought of him suffering. And even though Benjamin's the favored one now, I can't bear the thought of him suffering. Just take me. He's the opposite person than the guy who sent Tamar away. He's the opposite person. Because God ambushed him with this Canaanite lady who dressed up like a prostitute, like the mercies of God. And God's mercies are so huge. And guys, we need to see this. His mercies are so huge that this Judah who was going to be just another Cain until God intervened. He chooses this Judah. And even before Genesis is over, Jacob comes to Egypt and he's blessing all the sons. And he speaks his blessing over Judah. And he says, Judah, from you, the king is going to come. And I always wondered about that because Joseph's the good one. It's Joseph who gets mistreated and he's the one who's the prince of Egypt. How come Joseph isn't the one who gets promised that Jesus is going to come from him? And I think what God is saying is, number one, he's just exalting his mercy. You don't earn this. And number two, when Judah is pleading to die for a criminal, he's the one who looks most like my son, Jesus. When Benjamin is guilty and Judah's like, okay, he's guilty, but take me instead. He's the one who looks most like Jesus standing before the throne with his scar wounds before me saying, God, they're guilty, but honor my death in their place, set them free for my punishment. And so he says, that's the one of the 12 that I'm going to use to bring Jesus into the world. The mercies of God. Guys, the glories of God. And so, number one, can we embrace just walking in the fear of the Lord? Uh, Where we've got stuff hidden, hidden hurts, hidden sins, can we just know we are not in control of these things? And what usually happens is that we end up treating other people worse because of it, because we just can't stop looking at the hurt, can't stop looking at the past, can't stop looking at the trouble, can't stop trying to make the guilt away, and we, we experience all of life through just this thing. That, and so the fear of the Lord says, I need to bring this thing to God. Not bury myself in work, not bury myself in pleasure like women, not try to run away. God, what are you saying? There's this thing that keeps coming back. What are you saying? And number two, can we just see just the absolute mercies of God on people? If God hasn't put us to death, which if you can hear this, that's you, it means that there's still time for more mercy. It means you're living under his patience. It means that he has a plan. And so just just embrace the mercy. Just go for it. Here's a God who would take a Judah and make him, take him from the line of Judah to the line of Judah. And so we should be like having massive expectations of the mercies of God. Okay, guys, guess what? We're all sinners. We all deserve to die. Great. Let's receive as much mercy from God in this life as we can. Amen? We're all sinners. We all deserve to die. But God didn't do it, and he brought us to Jesus, and he made us believe, and he made us his children, and then he did the thing that is the most gracious thing anyone can ever have in in your life. He puts his own spirit inside of us. Like, forget even having your name in the Bible. 
the line of Robert. Who cares? I want the Spirit of God. That's his own heart, his own mind, his own inner holiness, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit that was inside David as he wrote the Psalms, the Spirit that was inside Isaiah as he prophesied the Christ coming, the Spirit that is life he puts inside of us to stay. To stay, not just for a fight and not just for a night, to stay. Because this is the most honoring, gracious thing that could ever happen to a sinner. That God would say, I put in my spirit in you through the shed blood of Jesus so that you know you're my child. And I just want us to be enraged against every single lie that would keep us from seeing the glory and the mercy of it. And it's not saying, oh, go away, not me, but instead saying, mine, 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 for the glories of God and the mercies of God. He loves the sinner. Mine, mine, mine. This is the truth. This is my past. I confess it all so that the Spirit and Christ can be mine, 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 for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Okay, I've gone on too long. Let's sing something. I'm going to pray. You've got as long as my prayer to get ready. And thank you. Why don't we stand together? Father, here we are, your people. God, I just confess we have no idea how good you are. Even now, Lord, after all these years, I have no idea how merciful and gracious you are. And Lord, someday I'm going to die, and it's going to feel like we're just getting started. When I see Jesus face to face, and then the new heavens and the new earth, and then I'll just know that all this good stuff has happened to somebody who should have been killed for his wickedness. Glory. And so, Lord, would you help each one of us just to embrace every truth that will be as free as we get, without as regret as we get, with our hearts set on doing good and faithfulness for your glory, mimicking Jesus' self-sacrifice so that we can have our heels crushed to destroy the head of the serpent with Jesus treasuring your kindness and putting the spirit in us, not so that we can feel proud and better about ourselves, so that we can just tremble in the generosities of God. How good. Be glorified in our midst, Lord.